so much, Wayne. Welcome again, everyone. It's great to see everybody. Great to be back. And I am looking forward to jumping into a new chapter of Hebrews, which is Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to go through the first 10 uh, verses. So if you can turn to that, or if you have your Bibles, you can turn to that, or it also will be appear on the screen as I read it, Lord willing. So we're going to uh, start to finish up this whole exposition about the new covenant, which is uh, very interesting. And we're going to see that this has been going on for a while through the book. And um, this is something that Paul, or whoever you want to say, read, wrote the letter, has been trying to drill into the hearers since the very beginning of this book. So here's the text. This is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. And this first section is a review. Listen, for the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer, continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have the consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of uh, bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Jesus talking. Verse 8. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He, Jesus, takes away the first in order to establish the second. And by this, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Amen. In uh, Dr. Fred Craddock's commentary on the letter to Hebrews, he makes an interesting statement and a warning of sorts to pastors and teachers. He says, the unfamiliar vocabulary and the density of the text in this book can often be daunting to those going through it for the first time. Not to mention the frequent repetition of points which, if not carefully looked at, can dull interest. No, but nobody here is bored with Hebrews, I hope. I do understand where he's coming from for sure. Dense, the text, yes. Unfamiliar words, absolutely. Many. We've, we've, we've heard them. Purification, sanctification, apostasy, old covenant, new covenant. And let's not forget our friend Mel, Melchizedek. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, and so on. But again, imagine how the Hebrews must have felt hearing this for the first time when they received this letter. Everything that we talked about that they would have been used to, now they're hearing this letter and it's shaking up their world. They didn't have a John Owen, for instance, the Puritan pastor and scholar from the 17th century 
who wrote a commentary on the book of Hebrews, which is only seven volumes and 4,000 pages. And no, I haven't read it yet. Nor do we have a William Gouge, who was also a Puritan from the century before, who didn't quite write 4,000 pages in his commentary, but he preached 1,100 sermons on this book to his congregation. That's unbelievable. (laughs) Not total sermons. Total sermons on the letter to the Hebrews. Now, to put that in perspective, we've been in it about six months, and we've preached about 24 sermons, this being our 25th. So they didn't have Bible Gateway, Blue Letter Bible, all those things instantly to go, oh, yeah, let me just do some word searches and some dig into the, the Greek and all this stuff. No, these rather heard the word. They heard it. They heard it read aloud probably several times. They made copies. They distributed it. They read it. They reread it. They compared it with other letters circulating around, and especially the Old Testament. And the Holy Spirit did his work in the listeners. So don't be afraid. Sometimes it gets a little complicated. Depend upon the Holy Spirit to open your heart to understand the Word of God. But do you have that dependence? Do we have that faith? Well, that's on you. I don't know. But that's what we need. When we hear the Word of God, it must be heard, and then it produces faith. But we must have that open heart. And this is my prayer for us as we go through this book, that the Spirit would really drill down into our heart and dig because I think why, why Hebrews has this reputation of deepness is not because of the difficult words and dense text, but rather because it both scales the camera lens way wide and back and gives us the big picture of the gospel going back to the old covenant and forward to the new covenant and ultimately, as we're going to see, the new creation. But also, just as, if not important, it also digs telescopically and microscopically into our redemption through the blood of Christ, which is so encouraging. Now, this blood that he poured brought and ratified a new covenant, which is what we talked about. Remember, the old covenant is exterior. The new covenant is about interior work. The new covenant is God writing on your heart and mind his law. The new covenant is God causing you to walk in his statues. And the new covenant fulfills and does everything the old was pointing to. And it's all on the basis of Jesus Christ and his blood spilled on the cross. Now, again, just to review the old covenant, it was a daily ritualistic type of coverings. Uh, with its sacrifices, offerings, burnt offerings, Day of Atonement. But all of these were insufficient, not because of God's holy, perfect law, because Paul even says in 1 Timothy 1.8, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. But the problem here is that nobody is able to use the law of God lawfully or perfectly or consistently. Even if they could, the animal sacrifices were worthless in a sense. Why? Because the old covenant law, as our writer says here in verse 1, can never 
Never. That's an absolute negative. It's there's never, it's never, 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 absolutely can that old covenant take away sins. It says, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. They can't make them perfect. And that's why Jesus came to make us perfect. And that, again, is manifested in the new covenant. And this, uh, our writer's been referring, you know, to telling his congregation that they, that they can't be made perfect by the law for the last nine chapters, basically. But very particularly from chapter 8, verse 1, to uh, chapter 10, which we're in today, verse 18, which we'll get to and finish next week, it's all in exposition, excuse me, of this new covenant. So this new covenant <clears throat> is something that is going to abruptly stop. We're going to, t- we're going to stop it at verse 18. And, and here's why I want to give you some encouragement. Verse 19 of, of 10, all the way through the end of the book, verse uh, chapter 13, is a much more practical and less complicated uh, portion to understand. The reason why it's, well, number one, t- towards the end of chapter 10, I have to warn you, there's another stern exhortation about going apostate, turning away from Jesus, and going back to the old covenant law. And we've heard that in chapter 6. But then after that, it's mostly exhortation, encouragement to take heart and action of what has been said. And we're going to get to chapter 11, which is going to be about faith. And we've been, we talked about that today in our Sunday Bible study. And we're also going to talk about it next week in our Sunday Bible study. So it would be a good idea. I mean, if you, if you come to the study, you could get this foundation of faith. Because when we get to 11, you'll be uh, off to, the, to, to a good start. Because he just lists over all the different uh, examples of faith throughout the Bible. So, <clears throat> the key, I believe, the central thing here is how do we become perfect? Now, I know that seems like a, like, how am I ever going to become perfect? Some people believe that they can become perfect on their own. And that's a lie. You can't. It's a deception of, that the human nature contains. They, we are inward we, have, uh, we are born into sin and we are de- by default our own gods. We are our own authority. But when Christ makes us new, <clears throat> we return from our sin, our old life, and then it becomes like a bright shining light from heaven in our minds and our hearts. <clears throat> Not only of what Christ did on the cross for us, but how deep and dark our heart truly is for him to suffer such a brutal death. So how do we become perfect? Well, the the writer gives us several clues in this passage. First, we already mentioned a little bit here in verse 1. Only those who draw near are allowed to be made perfect, right? Because he says here, these sacrifices can never make people perfect. Never. And what does he say? Make them perfect so what? That they can draw near. Now, what does this drawing near mean? It's mentioned five times in Hebrews. How do we draw near to God? Maybe you've been trying to draw closer and closer to God. You've been doing things. Been saying, I'm going to have, you know, I I, I really want to, I really want to know God more. And that's great. And we dive into his word. 
and we go to church and we go to Bible studies and we pray. And maybe we have a period of just awesome communion and participation with the presence of the Lord. And it's just amazing. And then after that, it feels like God has disappeared. And we just feel surrounded by like loneliness. Where are you, Lord? Now, the writer here, he says, draw near to God. And this is in, in, um, James says this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So this is something that God desires for us to do, but it's also something that can develop our spiritual muscles of faith. The more we draw near to God, the more he will draw nearer to us. And he's not going, oh yeah, you're drawing more near to me? All right, I'll draw near to you. No, he's been there the whole time. But the more your heart turns toward God, the more the fog gets wiped off the window and you can see more clearly the face of Christ. Well, I want to read a portion here of Isaiah 29, 13. Then the Lord said, because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, But they remove their hearts far from me. And their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. They honor me with their lip service. But they remove their hearts far from me. Reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. And that's what God doesn't want from you. He doesn't want you to set up this structure of this system that you've created That as long as you're doing all of these things, you're drawing near to God. Doesn't want you to do that. He wants you to go to him and depend on him. The real present Christ Jesus. He wants you to seek and draw after him. And then as a result of that, you will want to go and love one another and do good things and do all those things. And now you're doing the work of God. But if you go do those things, you put the cart before the horse. Without knowing Christ, you're putting the cart before the horse. Without trusting Christ fully, you're putting the cart before the horse. So we draw near, not with lip service or traditions we create and learn, but by drawing near with a sincere, humble, contrite heart towards God. And again, not by doing good works. These things happen happen as a result of drawing near. Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, these you will not despise. So to draw near right now, if you want more of God in your life and you've been struggling with that, examine your heart. Examine your heart. And I don't just mean like quickly examine it. I mean, like, go deep. Realize this, that God knows everything. He's all-knowing. He knows all of your things that you do. He knows all of your thoughts. He knows all of your sins, your actions, your words, and their consequences. He is closer to them then these hands are closer together, as closer than these hands are right now. 
That's how close he's actually, he could be a part of it, but he's not a part of sin. But he is so present with you and here. He desires your commitment, but it's not by do, it's by down. Broken spirit, broken heart. That doesn't mean you walk around going, oh, oh I'm so broken, you know, I'm so you know, humble. <laughs> you know, no, it means do business with God about your heart. Superficiality does not work with God. He sees every thought in your heart and mind. We can't trick him. And he will accept no one without their heart fully being willing to give him everything. The totality of your life. Not by your power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. So drawing near to God is exactly what it means. Coming into the presence of God, which the Hebrews would, was a, a, could never even con, uh, consider that. Because it was, I could never go in there. Can never go into that holy of holies. Oh, but in the new covenant, you are called into the presence of God. You are encouraged to go into the presence of God. Bumbling, stumbling, dirty, disgusting. You go in his presence. And he will welcome you and cleanse you. Wherever you are in your walk. We have that full access, but we must with this surrendered heart to his will and not ours, his kingdom and not ours. It's got to be surrendered to him. Where does this come from? Well, not anywhere that we can go and pick it up. This comes by the sovereign grace of God working in your heart, awaking you to the change that needs to be done and giving you the ability to do it, giving you the new heart that only the new covenant in Christ's blood can provide. So what do we do? Well, again, this is a most difficult thing because our hearts are so naturally bent inwards towards ourselves, towards fear of loss, towards constantly protecting and making sure everything's okay. We may give our hearts freely to each other, but I know for me, I, I catch myself oftentimes it's because it just makes me feel good. It makes me feel good to do for others and I find myself, Lord, am I doing this for you or for me? You know how you can see is, does it cost a lot? It doesn't cost that much to give to others. Does it? Even if you give them all your money and all your possessions, you can go get them back. But Jesus requires your life. He wants you to die to self and count the costs and then follow him completely. That's why he says, count the cost before you forsake all and follow me. Because it's not what you think it's going to be. If you think it's going to be just a, you know, I'm going to give you whatever you want because you've come to me. No, I'm putting you, I'm enrolling you in my army and you are going to face a battle that you've never faced before. You're going to face trials, tribulations, pain, suffering, discouragement, depression, anxiety, all those things. But knowing that the presence of God is with you will still give you peace, allowing you to say, Lord, this is your lot for me. Praise God. Abundant life isn't just abundant in the one way. It's also the, the ability to, when things are dark, to have the abundance of the presence of God with you. So if you're saying, I hope not, I hope you're not saying this, but 
You know, some people say, well, this isn't true. I do everything I do for people and for God out of the goodness of my heart. Well, this is the exact issue that the Hebrews and the New Covenant addresses. Our hearts are not good. I hate to break the news to you on that. Or, again, I, I like to always say and underline that with we, you and I, when we hang out and talk and we, we fellowship and we, you know, we love one another, I'm not looking at you like you rotten, dirty sinner, right? And you're not looking at me like, oh, you rotten, dirty hypocrite up there preaching. And, you know, well, you're not, we're not looking at each other, right, like that. But the Bible in Jeremiah 17, 9 says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I'll tell you who can know it. And only, only God can know the depths of the sin of your heart. Are you willing to go there with him? So that's why Jesus spilled his blood for us. He died for us so we can do that. We can have that relationship and that cleansing. Our only hope is to turn in faith to Jesus who provides freedom from sin and get this, the guilt of sin. You see, in turn, this makes us perfect in the eyes of God despite our previous present and future sins, especially the guilt and shame of our past sins. You can get that wiped clean, not with the old covenant, not with the sacrifices, but only with the blood of Christ. So it's God who must do it. It's our job to respond to him. The first response we ought to have is to acknowledge this, turn to God, and patiently seek and wait for God to change you on his time plan, not yours. Because we want everything now. So our main action step is to draw near. And we should, just, we should do just that. We should draw near, but first, We don't draw near through works. We draw near by seeking him with all of our heart. Again, invite Jesus into that deep, dark, shameful, sinful place. Deep beneath the sin, even the sin under the sin or the sin that's responsible for that sin. And and then again, you keep digging, you keep digging, take him down. No, I don't want to go there, Lord. I'm too shameful. Well, I, I know about it. But as long as you keep me from there, it's going to plague you. You're going to try to fill that, ease that. You're going to try to put bomb on it. You're going to try to, whatever you do, it's not going to work. <clears throat> Once we bring him down there, show him, Lord, I'm powerless to change. I can't change, Lord. Oh, finally, you admit it, Pat. You can't change. You think you can on your own all these years. Praise God. And he opens our heart. When we admit this powerlessness is where we see the power of God. And when we bring him down into those depths, he will wipe away that guilt. He will respond as you do this. He will draw nearer and nearer to you. Now, this leads us to the second way that we can be made perfect. And that is we must be cleansed. In verse 2, We get a keen insight into how significant this cleansing is. 
It refers to a cleansed heart before God that no longer is to have, get this, consciousness of sins. Consciousness of sins. We're just like the Hebrews. Not only did they have consciousness of sins, but they were reminded of their lack of cleansing year after year after year. It was a constant reminder of their failure, of their sin, of their guilt, of their shame. Maybe you can relate. Whenever you see or think about that person, you deeply hurt maybe. Maybe you let somebody down. Maybe it was years ago, but every time you see them, even though they may have moved on and you have moved on, it always subtly reminds you, you messed up. And you carry that guilt. You carry all the what ifs. Or maybe it was a failed relationship, marriage, improper raising of a child, business opportunity, whatever it is. You can relate to that guilt that they see when they see that sacrifice. You, You can relate to that. You see, outside of Christ, and even sometimes for those in Christ, we are guilt producing. Religion, system-creating machines. Know that. That's what we are as humans. Even sometimes in Christ, when we drift and we lose track and, and sight of who God is and, and we lose, you know, we're off. Maybe we went the wrong path. Maybe we eased over here. Maybe we eased over there. <clears throat> we respond almost outside of Christ. We always respond by creating systems of Relief or systems of work. And God wants to be that for us. Some Christians walk around always feel like they're falling short no matter what they do. Even if they sin or not, they always feel like they should be doing, doing, doing for God. And of course we fall short. We accrue guilt upon guilt. Uh, We become calloused. Guilt always leads to a hardened heart. May not happen right away, but it always leads to a hardened heart. That heart gets hard like a ball of clay. In the beginning, it's moist, it's wet. But as it sits, the longer it sits, it may be still squeezy, but eventually it gets so hard that the only way to get it and remake it is by smashing it, crumbling it, grinding it to powder, and then adding the living water. And that's what Jesus does. He gives you that new heart. That's the promise of the new covenant. I will give you a new heart. I will take away your heart of flesh, or your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Okay, there's the comparison there. Don't become hardened. God's grace in Jesus Christ is unlimited. It says where sin abounds, grace abounds more. And so a pastor is always scared to say this. You can't outsin God. And I say that to you with trepidation because I don't want to encourage you to go out and sin like Paul was saying as well. You know, should we then go out and say, yeah, let's go out and sin, you know, because we're glorifying God because of his grace. The more I sin, the more I'm forgiven. Praise God. Right. No, that's not what we want to do. We want to turn from our sin. And all this is in context of that, of, of, of trying to walk and draw near and, and be cleansed. And this is what the context is. And once you understand this, 
the heart becomes cleansed. The conscience, not just your main consciousness, but even your subconscious becomes renewed. So you can look at those past sins and instead of looking inward at the guilt, you look up at the cross of Jesus. Because he died, he poured his blood, not to temporarily make a change in you, not to temporarily sort of try to forgive sins, not to sort of do his best to take away the guilt. No, it's a done deal. But we don't have faith enough to believe that, so we continue to create those religious systems and want to fall back to them, like what the Hebrews were so wanting to do. I want that old covenant. Makes me feel good. At least I could do stuff and know, you know. But yeah, but it's not working. You need interchange. Now let's look at verses 5 to 7. There's a quote, as Wayne read, from Psalm 40, verse 6 through 8, which we read earlier. And this is uh, requoted here in verses 5, 6, and 7. <clears throat> now this is getting a little technical, but bear with me. Now this quotation here in, in our passage from the Old Testament is taken from the Septuagint version of Psalm 46 to 8. Now the Septuagint is the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament that was the most commonly used Bible in the first century. It shows that prophetically Jesus declared, this is him speaking, the insufficiency of the old covenant sacrifice to cleanse and declare his willingness to offer himself as a sacrifice under the new covenant, which cleanses perfectly. Now, I don't know if you caught it, but it doesn't say, in the, when Wayne read it from the Old Testament, the, the writer of Hebrews makes Jesus do the talking here. He says, but a body you have prepared for me. And in the Septuagint, it reads what Wayne read, and that is, you have uh, opened up my ears. And in the Hebrew, it means you have dug out my ear, which is referring to the bondservant who when he was going to commit to his master for his whole life, he would go up to a door and they would nail his ear to the door and put a piercing, and that meant he was uh, a franchise player. <laughs> he wasn't going anywhere. He is serving his master till his death. And that's what Jesus is saying here. A body you prepared for me so that I can be the bondservant and that I can go and do your will. The will that you wanted done that the people could not do. Nor Adam, nor the law, nor Moses, nor anyone. I will go. And then when he went, he went to do this work. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. When you're in Christ, believing by faith in him for your ongoing cleansing of the guilt of the past sins and mistakes, you, like Jesus, are doing God's will. And because you believe in him, you are made perfect in his eyes. And that brings us to the third point. And we see in verses 8 to 10, we read, After saying above sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first, in order to establish the second. But this will, God's will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once and for all. It's God's will. 
God's will was for Christ to come and die to make you sanctified. Now, sanctification here does not refer to the internal change that happens as a result of our belief in Christ, necessarily, but it does end up there. It ends up renewing us from the outside. The the sanctification that produces inner change is what the Westminster Shorter Confession refers to as the work of God's free grace, where we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God. And we are enabled more and more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. That's purifying sanctification. That's inner sanctification. It's happening in all of us who believe in Christ right now through the Spirit inside of you. What sanctification means in this context is a positional sanctification. As we see here in verse 10, by this we will have been sanctified, set apart by God as his child, seated with him in the heavenlies. And if I had more time, I would tell you to go to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 7, where it talks about us being seated in the heavenlies, holy and blameless. But me, Pat, I'm a miserable sinner. Holy and blameless because of your belief in Christ. Turn from your sin. Don't let the guilt of sin keep you from the fullness of Christ. You can't get a more perfect status than being blessed by God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in the heavenly places by his grace, forgiveness of sins, and the offering of Christ once and for all. Not every week. Once and for all. Unfortunately, we often want heavenly blessings now, or we don't really see the point of being made perfectly spiritually in heaven. How's that helping me now? I got bills to pay. I mean, I've got crazy things going on in my life. I've tri- got trials. I've got tribulations. Yeah, you're, 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 you're wanting stuff that's, that's supposed to be not necessarily here, but in the new creation, in the resurrection, where we'll be free from sin. So from the cross to the new creation, we are told to walk by faith, regardless of what life God has given you. Walk by faith. Don't look for instant perfection, like a revet, an investment. We want a return. Quick, come on. I gave you my, my, my life, God. Give me, a, give me something. Show me something. Just give me a vision. Give me a this. Give me a that. No, go to the Word. Humble yourself before the Lord. It'll draw nearer and nearer. Christ, or God wants Christ crucified, resurrected, and ascended to be our hope. And that's the ultimate perfection He will bring when He returns. The best part is that our positional sanctification always leads to internal sanctification, the changing of us from the inside out, of our sinful heart working in and through us as we ultimately became made more and more and more like Christ, where there is no higher perfection. So be made perfect, draw near with a full heart, not just with words or actions of ministry or good deeds. Be cleansed of guilt and shame from your sins past, present, future, but especially those lingering, painful memories of mistakes, the guilt that is causing you to stay here because you're trying to fix it. Give it to Christ. Be cleansed of all the guilt and shame. And remember your positional sanctification. You are already enrolled in the book of life 
if you believe in Christ. And he will keep you and protect you as he turns your positional into that internal and then makes you more and more the human being that you were originally intended to be. We weren't intended and created to have sin. Okay, that's why it does so so much havoc in our life. Because we were intended and created to manifest the image of God and we were intended and created to be to do everything we do to glorify God, but that all turned inward. And it does not turn outward any other way other than being born anew through the gospel, through believing in the gospel. Jesus Christ crucified, resurrected, and ascended. We will be revealed ultimately perfected in the new heavens and the new earth. But the question is, is will you trust him until that time? Through all this, like we were saying on Sunday Bible study, our life goes like this. Well, we're doing great. And then we shoot down so far sometimes that the, when we look up, we only see the bottom. And we get discouraged. But God wants you to know you are written in the book of life. Jesus will keep you, protect you. He'll make you that human being. Trust him. Draw near. Be cleansed from your sins. Sanctified with Christ in the heavens. And you will be connected more to the presence of God in your life. And ultimately lead you to being used more and more by God in all that you do to build towards his kingdom. All right, so we don't need 11,000 or 1,100 sermons after all. You should understand them right now that there's no other way but through the blood of Christ. And appropriately, we're now going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And this action that we're about to take by partaking of the Lord's Supper is something that Jesus commanded us to do. To eat the bread and drink the wine in remembrance of him. This is so much more than a ritual. It's ultimately a gift of cleansing grace that the Lord gave us to publicly uh, publicly proclaim and announce that single, listen, past, one-time, unrepeatable event of him faithfully giving his body and blood for the forgiveness of sins. There is forgiveness to be found nowhere else. So if you haven't trusted Jesus fully, or you're struggling with your sins, or you have one foot in the word and one foot in the world, make now a turning point. Call out to God before we partake. And if that's something that you don't want to do and you're not there yet, it's okay. This isn't something that you just do so you can make sure everybody sees that I'm taking partaking. No, listen, nobody's looking. You put your head down and you pray. Turn, just just if you're not going to partake, then pray for God as we're passing these elements out to bring you to that place. So now I would like to invite uh, Kevin, would you uh, come up and you're going to play? And Hubert, would you help pass out the elements? We're going to pass out both of the elements, the bread and the wine, which is actually grape juice. And um, after that, we'll, we'll come up and we'll partake together.
<clears throat> this is 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the juice. In verse 26, it says, For as often as you do this, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So you've just proclaimed the Lord's death. So let's um, stand and worship and let's contemplate everything we've just did and everything we've heard. <clears throat>